Good. Well, thank you, choir. Uh, that was really beautiful. I'm still unpacking uh, that song about mothers. Uh, shouldn't be allowed to sing that while you're standing next to your mom in church. <sighs> Getting a little emotional there. <laughs> um, and thank you, Rod, for filling in. You just did such a wonderful job. Um, and, and Dave is taking a, a much-needed break. So thank you so much, Rod, for for filling in and doing such a wonderful job. Um, as Rod mentioned, we are in the midst of a sermon series where we're going through the different streams. Um, I'm excited to speak this morning on the stream of social justice, as Richard Foster puts it, or we might say biblical justice. Uh, yesterday I was at a birthday party and I was uh, asked by one of my son's um, friend's fathers what I was preaching on on Sunday. I told him I was preaching on social justice, and he said, oh, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> and I told him, well, I'm Presbyterian, so I feel like we're standing in a, a, a long-standing tradition um, when it comes to this. In fact, this is, I would say, uh, the tradition that saved me in a way. Uh, it, is, uh, it is a tradition that when I was in my own dark night of the soul as a young man in college, uh, that, that really uh, at one point as I was praying uh, and, and wondering about the authenticity of my faith, that I remembered Matthew chapter 25. And the promise found there that if you would go um, to those who are in need of clothes or food or the prisoner, that the promise is that you would meet Jesus in them. And so from there, as a young man in college, I said, well, if that's true, then I'll go. And out of a process of going to different places uh, where people were in great need, I did discover faith in Jesus Christ and in all of the streams came alive again for me through this stream. And so I just thought I'd give you my little testimonial up front. Um, and I also want us this morning to begin to see that there is a conversation um, in the larger culture and also in our Bibles between the stream we're looking at this week, um, the, the stream of biblical justice, and the stream we're going to look at next week, which is the um, evangelical stream, and how these two streams uh, belong together. And in fact, in, their, in our Bibles, they go together so well and so naturally. And so we're going to spend our first two uh, moments here, our first two points within the sermon, just looking at how these two streams really go together. So if you would, would you turn to Psalm 85? I think I gave Heather only uh, two verses, but I'm actually going to jump up. So the first two won't be on the screen, but then it'll follow from there. I'm actually going to start in verse 7. So Psalm 80, 85, verse 7, if you have a Bible, uh, you can read along, or if you want to listen along, that's what they did in the early church anyways. Okay, so it says this. 
Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. And the reason why I jumped up to verse 7 there is because I want to have a conversation about salvation and what that word means. Now, if I asked you uh, what the word salvation means and a couple verses that uh, you might want to offer when it comes to the meaning of salvation, my guess is because these verses dominate the landscape from the evangelical stream that you would probably turn to that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, where he said, uh, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. And we might also say that, like Jesus said to Nicodemus, that if we want to be saved, we must be born again, right? That, that we must become a new creation in light of who Jesus is. I love that conversation. What a wonderful, sacred, and mysterious conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. And of course, we'll get to the evangelical stream next week, but the evangelical stream picked that up, and boy, did that get broadcast around the world, didn't it? Which is a great thing and good news. But the way in which the, uh, the justice stream comes to fill in this conversation about salvation is to say, the ingredients of salvation in the mind of a good Hebrew would have gone back to their people's story, their delivery out of slavery and Egypt and into the promised land because for them, salvation meant deliverance and liberation. And so their understanding of what salvation meant can be found in the text we just, found, we just read together. The ingredients of salvation would be mercy. They would be glory. They would be hesed, or as it's translated here, love and faithfulness, which we might say compassion. And then ultimately, the striving of every single person, whether they know it or not, is for shalom, for peace. And so our saving has to do with both being born again and believing in Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. But it also has to do with the saving of our physical bodies. And all people, with all of their needs, all oppressed people everywhere, that God's heart is that they would be saved in the way that the Hebrews were saved. 
And so we can see here how this idea of salvation is not an either or, but a both and. And we can see that again in a really beautiful teaching that um, I recently came across by the theologian Ronald Rollheiser. He takes up the early moments in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, the very first words that Jesus say in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 15, repent and believe. Another very well-known evangelical sentence, right? Repent and believe. But Rollheiser points to the Greek here to help us to understand exactly what this word repent means. In Greek, the word repent is metanoia. Metanoia. Speaking of this word meta, which means beyond or above. And then noia, which is speaking of our minds. Perhaps we best understand it by going to the word that is its opposite, paranoia. We know that one, don't we? Metanoia sounds strange, but paranoia we know pretty well. Uh, we, we can think of somebody who's a paranoid person, but really we could even think of how at times in our life when things aren't going the way we'd like them to go, we can end up in this lower mind, this paranoia. In uh, the past week, I had a day where... Um, in the morning, I was playing with my children, and I was holding my daughter, and her face was about right here when my son came running through with a pillow and slammed my daughter, which put her face and head right into my face and head. Um, and dad was like almost knocked out. He was very not happy. Then we went off uh, to the park, and we started playing uh, a game of kickball when all of a sudden my son got a bee sting on his foot, and he was losing his mind. I've never seen somebody in such frantic, <laughs> anxious energy um, as, uh, as a six-year-old with a bee sting. Then we came home, and I was rocking my daughter, trying to get her to go to sleep, and I leaned back, and there was a camera, because <laughs> we surveil our children. And the camera was knocked by a string off, and it came and crashed right down on my head. And I was just like, you know what? Is the world just against me today? And then the next morning, I woke up and we went back to the park. And we had discovered that at our favorite park, that an arsonist the night before had decided to burn Lomita Park. And you're standing there and you're wondering, is this world just destined to go wrong? What is it about something good, that somebody has to come along and do something bad. Really what paranoia speaks to is this fear of men, fear of other humans that creeps in, this lower mind of ours that wants to knee-jerk react to whatever is happening. And we begin to get conspiratorial and think things are always going to go bad. And we get afraid that if 
somebody else succeeds that we won't have enough because there's not enough for everyone um, and everything to go around. So when Jesus comes and he says, repent and believe, metanoia, he's saying, put on the higher mind. Put on this big mind. And you've probably been in that space before too. There's different things that put us in the space, but one of them, for example, would be, I was speaking with a, a good colleague, friend and colleague of mine, and he had just come from a counseling session where he was with a couple that had this terrible news that their newborn baby had gotten a rare uh, birth defect, like one in a million type birth defect, where they learned that within the year, she probably wasn't going to make it. And he said that one of the things that happened as he walked out of there was that all of his problems disappeared as he was confronted with the reality of real problems. And he took on a higher mind. He saw the greater need, the deeper need of this couple. And so in that space, he was able to find compassion. And to lay aside whatever his things were, his paranoid things, the things he needed to get done and to go towards this couple. To try and care. So within the text we just read in Psalm 85, we find this wonderful Hebrew word, like I mentioned, hesed. This Hebrew word that really speaks to how our heart should break for the things that break the heart of God. I can remember um, in one of my first ministry experiences, I got to go to Anchorage, Alaska. I've told you about this, and there was a young man there, uh, five-year-old kid. This, this kid was like Oliver Twist. He was just amazing five-year-old like I've never seen before. He, he would beat up 10-year-olds, no problem. And he became kind of my favorite kid in the inner city of Anchorage, Alaska at our little Bible club that we had um, but he was also really difficult to chase down. And, and we understood why. Because we knew his parents. And I made one of the most classic mistakes of my life that summer as I <laughs> called my mom up on the phone and said, hey, can we get Ryland and his parents a hotel room for the weekend? And I took what was in my bank account at the time and the little that I had as a college student gave it to them so that they wouldn't have to be homeless in Anchorage, Alaska for one weekend because I love this kid so much. Well, as you know, that if you just throw money to people that struggle with drugs, giving them a hotel room probably isn't the best idea. And so my heart was ripped open to see who Ryland's parents were. That same week, there was a group that came up. We didn't have a very big Bible club, and so we, as a group, outnumbered the actual kids within the club. But what we decided to do was take them to the fair. We took them to the fair, and I thought the, the group was going to be disappointed because there weren't enough kids. But they had this wonderful pastor, 
And so there was this moment where we took Ryland and he was up on a slide and every single person from this youth group stood at the bottom of the slide. And as he went down the slide, they all cheered as loud as they could cheer for this five-year-old homeless kid in Anchorage, Alaska, whose parents did not want to pay attention to him. And that was an extension of compassion. That was a picture of God's heart. As he looks at each and every one of us, as we slide down the slide, knowing all of our stories and history and the difficulties of our day, that which we don't understand about each other, and he stands there with this compassionate heart, cheering us on, saying, do it. Enjoy life. Would you come to know my compassion so that you can extend my compassion? Many of us, as we just sang so beautifully, learn this from our mothers, don't we? There is no harder job than mother. And as a father, I know because when things got dicey, I was not going in. I'm sending mom in for sure, right? And then... Only when reinforcements are needed would I even show my face, right? But we can think of this picture of Mary in Scripture um, as a representation of this mother's heart at such a deep and profound level. You know, I don't agree with everything that um, a Catholic might think about Mary but their framework around her immaculate heart, her massive heart, this heart that would not stop loving no matter how difficult things got for her is truly remarkable and stands in the scriptures as a testament to the power of big, compassionate love. In the Catholic tradition, they even describe this as Mary's seven sorrows that she experienced. When Mary brought Jesus to Simeon, Simeon told Mary that her heart would be pierced. And then from there, they were forced to flee into Egypt. And then she literally lost The child Jesus, which (laughs) if you lost your child for three days may cause you some anxiety, right? And then she stood there as Jesus was condemned. And then as he was crucified. And then as they got his burial clothes. And then put him in a grave. And she was there with Jesus to take it all in and to love no matter what. That is a mother's love, is it not? This is hesed, this beautiful word of compassion. And so we'll, we'll turn from compassion now into mishpat, justice. So how do these things work together? How does compassion and justice go together. One of the most famous scriptures about 
justice is um, from Amos chapter 5, verse 21 through 24. And this morning, because we're in this stream of living water, I thought I'd uh, read to you Eugene Peterson's translation of this text. It says this, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religious projects, your pretensions, slogans, and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relation and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you actually sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all that I want. And if we really think about God and not ourselves, why would he not want justice for all of his children? This is just leveling the playing field and said God loves each and every person. And he wants fairness and goodness and truth to reign. And we can catch here in the text, right, that this injustice can even creep into the church. And it's not just Amos in the Old Testament who teaches us this, but we see this even later with James in James 1.27. He says, religion that, our God, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so as we come to worship, we see there's a relationship between our striving for justice and compassion in our daily life and what we do here when we sing to God, to connect to God's heart, to have God break our heart again for the things that break his heart and go into the world and do something about it. And then God loves our worship. And you might say, well, okay, that's nice to say. And we might say to the text, well, that's great. But you know what? When it comes to issues of justice, things are really messy, right? Things are not always easy to decide which, which way we should go, uh, which policy we should agree with, and which one we shouldn't. And, and the scripture even takes this up in such a beautiful way as it talks about justice. You know, when Solomon, the young King Solomon, prayed for wisdom, he was actually praying for mishpat, the same word for justice. He was praying that he would be wise enough to know how to bring forward justice into the land. And James also is speaking of wisdom early on in the first chapter of James, and he says this, if you feel like you lack wisdom, just ask God for it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all who reproach, who all and will and it will be given to him. So one of the things we need to do if we want to bring forward justice, 
is to ask God for wisdom. Because things are messy and complicated. And the promise of Scripture is that for each case, in each instance, there may be something unique. Maybe something that God wants to do. And so we don't just go with our version of what we think justice should be. We go to God and ask him for wisdom in each and every case. This cry for justice is loud and strong within the biblical texts. It goes all the way back to when Cain killed Abel. And, it's, and, and the Lord is speaking to Cain and he's asking him, why did you do this? And then he says this, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The scholar Walter Brueggemann describes this as like the primal scream of creation that cries out justice. And I don't know if you hear that in your heart, but I've seen human beings' hearts cry justice even recently. Many of you know my father is a a criminal defense attorney. And in his latter years, he has turned to the specialty of getting uh, prisoners out of prison that were wrongfully accused because there's new evidence that came in. Just in the last month, my dad, wearing his St. Andrew's mask, which made me especially overjoyed, sat in a courtroom where his client was freed from being in Pelican Bay Prison for over 20 years. And he came out and my dad got to give the news uh, to his friends and family and to the news sources that this young man who was wrongfully accused of murder is now gets to go free out into the world. And if you've ever seen something like that, you see people overflow with joy. Why? Because our hearts cry, justice, justice, mishpat, mishpat. That's the way God made us. And so if we put our higher mind on and not our lower mind that wants to knee-jerk but goes to the higher mind and says, how do I actually bring forward justice for others out of compassion? And this is where justice and mercy work together, right? Because in a way, maybe we could have compassion, but we can benefit from an unjust system. And so we need to bring these two works together. We want to do acts of compassion in the real world, but we also want to make the world fair as best as we can, knowing it will never be perfect so that we don't have to continuously do acts of compassion because there's a systems creating the need. And so we address both of those things, justice and mercy together in the hopes that we can bring forward shalom. You know, uh, uh, in the early Greco-Roman society, uh, they, they can trace this amazing thing that happened with the New Testament church. In fact, they can track where the New Testament church was growing based off of this one phenomena, which was that in the Greco-Roman world up to that time, it was 
um, it was written within the law that women had no rights. And so it was legal sex trafficking, essentially, that was going on in the Greco-Roman world. But one of the stances of the early Christian church was that was completely immoral and that women should have rights just like men have rights and shouldn't be owned as property. And so Kyle Harper, the great New Testament historian, traces the New Testament church by where that law was overturned in the Greco-Roman society. See, these things are bound up together. Our salvation is a salvation of body, mind, and spirit all together, and it's all driving towards shalom. See, in the beginning of Scripture in the garden is a picture of peace and shalom, and we know that because it's right there on our stained glass window, and at the end of creation, there's a picture of shalom, another garden, a renewed city garden. We can see that because it's on our stained glass window at the, at the very top and the back. And we're, we, are book, we are bookended by shalom. This striving for the great peace that God desires when we won't have to be compassionate anymore, when we won't have to seek for justice anymore because all will be at peace. But until that day comes, in this in-between we live in, we drive towards this picture. And whenever we taste it, we celebrate it with all that we are. And we say, God, would you give us more compassion? Would you give us more justice so that we can know your peace? Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that you invite us to drink from the stream of justice. Um, may you challenge us, Lord, to do your work for those who need it most. And also, may we receive your compassion and your big heart so that it would flow from a place of love and generosity and not a place of obligation. Lord, energize us again by your spirit to do this work. We thank you that you've saved us so that we might save others. Help us to repent and believe. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Will you stand and receive the benediction this morning? To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.